This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, AOPA holds its second aviator showcase. And more orders roll in for Buy Aerospace's Electrics. Speaking of electric, MagniX and GE will talk about a new award from NASA. Jumping off electrics, let's talk about the Gulfstream fleet growing by two. Finally, it looks like there might be light at the end of the tunnel for the Lotomess. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, a really interesting woman, Jacqueline Ruiz. She is a Latina pilot, which... We know, first of all, that there aren't that many female pilots to begin with, but then Latinas are even a smaller segment of that. And she's written a book about Latinas in aviation. That's right, Ian. And it was part of a celebration, basically an inaugural celebration, Latinas in Aviation, the Global Festival. It was held at College Park Airport in Maryland. And Ian, you wrote about the seven percenters a while back. This is a a pretty in-depth story that you put some numbers to about how to fix the pilot population and diversify it. And Jacqueline tells us a little bit about that. And now she's a sport pilot as well. She tells us about that. So the sport pilot facet of her is even a microcosm of the Latina, you know, Hispanic females in aviation. And it's fascinating. So I think she's got a lot to tell us. All right. Fantastic. So I want to start the news with another event, and that is the AOPA Aviator Showcase. Of course, we've promoted these many times over the year. And We've just held our second at Fort Worth, and it was a success despite some weather. Actually, it wasn't a weather challenge, but the threat of weather was a challenge. It was. Uh, it kept quite a few people away, but nonetheless, there were hundreds that did attend 
the Fort Worth showcase that was at Alliance Airport in Texas. And there were uh, quite a few new airplanes there that we were expecting, and uh, folks were pretty excited about it. Of course, they got to see some of the workshops that we do and we're known so well for. And it was just a chance on a smaller scale to get people out and about looking at airplanes, looking at some of the technology, and really having a little bit of camaraderie. Yeah. So the the point of these, which we'll see next year, kind of what the new plan is for events. And obviously, it's a, it's evolving all the time because of the health situation around the country and around the world. But these were meant to be, as you said, smaller, more outside, kind of wide open. There were about 30 airplanes on display, about 60 inside a hangar in, in an exhibit. And really, these shows... I think they attracted people who were ready to buy, right? So you were able to go look at a couple airplanes, really spend a lot of time with the dealers, a lot of time at these exhibits. And I think everybody really in the end was was happy with it, even though it was on a smaller scale than we're used to. Yeah. And speaking of smaller scale, there were some airplanes that were smaller airplanes, but still had plenty of oomph and get up and go, including the VL3 Evolution. That's a two-place European carbon fiber sport airplane that Dave Hirschman told us about out of Air Venture. But that thing will will just flat out move depending on the engine that you put in it. But it's a little pricey, 230 grand for the, the low end airplane up to about 330,000 for the highest performance model with an IFR panel and a lot of extra capability. But I thought that was pretty cool. And then at the other end was uh, the Vashon aircraft. This is um the, the Ranger that we wrote about about a year ago. Yeah, we featured that in, uh, in AOPA Pilot Magazine. So, you know, sort of bookmarking those two points on the spectrum, you know, are kind of neat. Uh, but there, were, there was a lot of other aircraft there and a lot of other things at the exhibit hall to take a look at, too. Yeah. One airplane I would love to see there in the future, if they can get there, is by Aerospace and the E-Flyer. As we've talked about, they're developing a whole line of airplanes, and and the orders keep rolling in. They just announced one for the training provider for KLM, the Dutch airline. Yeah, those folks put down deposits on 14 of these aircraft, Ian. And, you know, you and I and our Hangar Talk listeners can put a deposit down for five or $10,000. We can get in line ourselves you know, for the for the electric technology. But, you know, if you recall the Bi E-Flyer 2 aircraft, you know, that's a two-seat version with an approximately 150 horsepower, 110 kilowatt power, you know, electric motor. That's still $489,000. It's nothing to sneeze at. But the company is just rolling in with the orders. And, and George Bai introduced a cabin class type of aircraft, a twin, a few months ago as well. And there's some interest in that, too. Yeah, they, I think, also announced some orders for that from a European operator. And that's actually not surprising. I mean, you mentioned the, the price, the 489000 It's a little bit like diesel, right? Where I think in places where there's a better electric network already, where fuel is more expensive, it, the, the economics of the initial purchase price, it doesn't matter as much because the operating costs are lower and the delta is so much bigger because that fuel is more expensive, like in Europe. That's a really good point. Once you get past that purchase price hurdle, the maintenance is a lot less. So we've oh, we've got way fewer moving parts on these electric motors. And, you know, the, the concept of hot swapping batteries is pretty cool to me, too, at times, because if you're running a flight school, you know, get them in, get them out, you know, while the airplane's on the ground, you're debriefing someone, maybe the maybe the ground crew is slipping new batteries in, you know, recharge batteries, that kind of thing. I can see a return on that. It was 
considerably more difficult to see a return on like the diesel version of the Cessna 172. Right, right. Because the rebuilding rebuilding that engine, which was going to be a mandatory thing, is you know. Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. You had to basically couldn't rebuild the engine. You had to swap it out. Yeah, yeah, TBRs. Yeah, exactly. So this is quite a, quite a different, you know, business plan, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So you know, electric as it continues to sort of plot along, there's what I think is is an obvious benefit there to the flight training community and buy, and obviously people are seeing that. And then there's the other end, whole group of companies who are working on the transport category side, one of those being MagniX, and it was just announced that they've been given a whole pile of money from NASA. $74.3 million, Ian, from NASA over the next five years. And that's to demonstrate the electric propulsion technologies for that. And, you know, don't forget, they came out with these big honking you know, motors for those aircraft not long ago. We've written about it and talked about it a little bit, too. But basically, they've got some big investment coming in for Magnex and GE Aviation. Yeah, GE also got $179 bucks for the same program. Yeah, and I think that this really shows that the industry is ready to put their weight behind some of this technology. You know, the Magnex, we've talked about the Magni 350, the Magni 650 electric motors, and that company is flying aircraft over there in, in Vancouver, British Columbia, Harbor Air. They were first on the scene with a, an electric motor beaver, and things are happening. So that little corner of the North Pacific Northwest is a hotbed of electric aviation activity. Yeah. So the goal is to get, like we were saying, to this transport category size. And like you mentioned, you know, you're they're there with a twin honor. Now, GE is looking at a more hybrid solution. It's all part of this NASA program called Electric Power Train Flight Demonstration, or EPFD. And it's in their research arm. And, and GE's is, like I said, a little more hybrid-based, but they're looking at flying actually a Saab 340, which is a, a big airplane, and now you're talking about, okay, now you can start taking people and bags and going longer distances. Yeah, that would be a good a good commuter airline, especially if you're jumping between islands, you know, maybe in the Pacific Northwest or or the Caribbean, because the islands there would be, that'd be a great place to test some of these concepts out too. And I think that, you know, with a handful of folks on these airplanes, you can recharge the batteries. You got that hybrid model, like that Toyota Prius. You kind of got the best of both worlds, in my opinion. I, I think that might be the way that the industry goes, but that's just Dave T talking, you know? So <laughs> yeah, you might be right. Now, one, one hurdle to all of this is certification because there is no defined FAA certification pathway. But there is news there, too, as well, in that MagniX has been given special conditions for certification. So this is any time a company is trying to do something that's outside the regs. You know, they go through this whole process, and MagniX went through it, and, and it was awarded. And so they now have a pathway to get to that certification. So that's going to lead the company towards that certification. Well, I think the buy-in here is pretty interesting because that was at the Vertical Flight Society's Electric Aircraft Symposium over the summer, and an FAA representative there was was there to help you know promote move things forward. And, and this is a really good quote. You and I were chatting about this before we got on the air, but. They said that they're working at the FAA to get a special condition issued for the first project to certificate an electric engine. The condition is written around one particular company, which is Magni-X, assumably. 
and the product. And the representative, Gary Horan, says that, to be honest with you, we don't know that they'll be the first ones to cross the finish line, but we had to pick a horse, and that's what we did. And we're re reading that to you from Aviation Today. You want to give them credit on that article. I thought it was pretty neat, and it's pretty honest, too. Yeah, it is. That is really interesting. And it goes to show how far along they really are. So very cool. And we'll continue to watch them. But, you know, a company that has had great success in the certification realm is obviously Gulfstream. And coming because MBAA is coming up, they have announced two new models, actually. Kind of shocked folks over the last couple of days, the G400 and the G800. You know, I want to say, Ian, that the last time we had a, a live in-person in MBAA base that Gulfstream kind of did the same thing where they waited to the last minute, whipped out a couple of these monster aircraft and, and kind of went to town on it. But yeah, the G800 and the G400, I mean, who even knew that they were developing that? I did not. Yeah, neither did I. They say the G400 especially is, you know, they call it a dormant space, super midsize. It's going to be 35 million bucks. They're expecting it kind of 2025, about seating, let's call it up to 12 passengers. One thing I think that's interesting is they were pushing the, let's call it the health impacts of, of what the, you know, some of the development's going to bring. 100% fresh air cabin, no recirculation, plasma, plasma ionizing. Boy, that's hard to say. Plasma ionizing. Ionizing. Thank you. <laughs> Bacteria spore and odor killing systems seating up to 12 passengers, three floor plans, Pratt and Whitney powerhouses, uh, PW800 812 GA engines. Wow, that's a moving airplane at Mach 0.85. Yeah, and now the 800 will be the big boy, replace the current 650. So I guess the you know the 700 that they're developing is the 7500 nautical mile range. The 800 will have an 8000 nautical mile range, which is incredible. 8000 nautical miles. Where can we go at 8000 nautical miles? Can we circle the Earth? No, but man, I mean it's like you <laughs> That's know. That's Gosh, it is just amazing. That is crazy. I can't even imagine. I mean, I'm like in a, you know, I'm in the Cessna yeah, right. Piper, you know, <laughs> Three, Mooney 300 World. 300 miles. Like, yeah. yeah, 600 yeah. miles That's is right. like pretty good. Oh my right, gosh. Right, right. Wow, yeah. 8,000 miles. But look, if you can afford a $71.5 million corporate jet like that, you got to get places. And so kudos to them for pioneering some of the technology to get you there, including the dual HUD you know, set up the symmetry cockpit, the combined vision systems. Uh, those are all on the G400, you know, and then all kinds of uh, products and, and, and new developments on the 800. Wow. Yeah, incredible. It's also, by the way, going to have a new wing, which I think is interesting. And you're talking max speed of point, Mach 0.9. Of course, I doubt it can go 8,000 miles at that speed, but incredible, incredible stuff. And when can we look for that airplane? That one, I think they're already in development on. So 2023 is what they're saying on that guy. Okay. We'll keep our eyes out for that. So David, let's finish off hopefully with some good news. Now the Loda, we've talked about this many times. This is about, you know, the experimental light sport instruction for owners and, and CFIs. We think there's probably a pathway where this is going to get fixed a lot faster than the FAA was planning to fix it. You know, it's a good thing that we have some friends in aviation that are also congressional members. Uh, Representative Sam Graves and uh, Kai Kaeli from Hawaii, they got together for a bipartisan amendment 
and I think things are going to happen, like you said, on the legislative front that will help folks continue to train in their experimental aircraft and, and some other types of aircraft, warbirds included, without that letter of uh, deviation authority. Yeah. So the deal is, of course, we say it's an amendment. It's an amendment to the defense bill. So that's obviously going to pass. It has to pass. It always passes. And that's how you know we think it's, it's going to actually end up happening. Now, the, the amendment basically says flight training is not flying for hire. So like we said, let's just go back to the way it is. It has been. It's always been. And say that flight training is instruction, that you're not carrying people or property for hire. And you don't need a load to instruct in an experimental or an LSA. Yeah, because for the preceding 60 years, the precedent wasn't that you were hiring the airplane, you were hiring the instructor. So that changed over the summer. And with it, there was a lot of backlash from AOPA members and others. And we've been working furiously and behind the scenes ever since. If you recall, FAA Administrator Steve Dixon called the LODA a four-letter word, uh, and, a, and a document drill. That was during EAA AirVenture. And he said he wasn't any happier about the situation than we were. But, you know, he's not a general aviation pilot. That was pointed out. He comes from the, the commercial airline world. And he, I don't think he really understood how it impacted all of us folks until he really got his eyes open during AirVenture. Yeah, that's right. So one thing, when you call into AOPA and, and call the hotline, the calls that that the reps think everybody in the in the company need to know about get get routed. And so somebody had called in and saying, hey, they bought an experimental. You know, they need to get type-specific training on it, right? You get a new airplane, you want to be trained on it. They immediately applied for a LOTA and basically was it was just shelved because in the registration database, it hadn't been updated yet. So, you know, they've got the the piece of paper that says, I am the owner of this airplane. But the FAA is like, well, in the, in the registry, you're not the owner of the airplane. But of course, they are. And, you know, this is the important period where you need that instruction, right? I mean, and this is just one of the many, many examples of why this is a terrible policy. That's a good example. So now I get it, Ian, the way that you explained it. So if I buy an airplane, I'm going to need that transition instruction to be able to be safe and competent in that aircraft, especially if I haven't flown something before. Like, say it's a say it's a Vans aircraft RV4 tail dragger. So, yeah. And so, meanwhile, the FAA hasn't processed my registration for that airplane because I just bought it, uh, hypothetically. So, I see what the problem is. Yeah, you can't, you really can't get that loaded unless you're on the registration form. Yeah. So, something like that would really put you back. And what are you going to do? Then now you've spent money on the aircraft and it's sitting where? In a hangar? Maybe you can't even fly it to your home field from where you purchased it from. Right. Yeah. Probably your insurance company says you need time in it first. You'd have to find an instructor with their own LOTA. And who knows these days if you're going to be able to do that. So yeah, it's, I mean, there are all kinds of situations like that. Well, that is a LOTA. I don't know. Maybe we should yeah, go right, to the yeah. next. <laughs> maybe we should, <laughs> right. we should introduce our special guest. Yeah. So Jacqueline, I'm so glad you caught up with her. I think this is an important thing to talk about. Obviously, I wrote the story. It's something I feel passionate about. And I know you do too. And that is increasing diversity in aviation and, and showing everybody that they are welcome in aviation. And uh, I think it's so cool that, that you saw her at College Park and got a chance to chat with her. Let's hear what she has to say. And it was good to catch up with Jacqueline Ruiz and 15 of the 22 aviators she profiled in her book.
Jacqueline Ruiz, you are a Latina aviator and a light sport pilot. How did you get to be there? Thank you. You know, just like anything else, Dave, sometimes you get that inspiration and it leads you to places that you never expected. I certainly never dreamt of being a pilot. And uh, it was at, a, at an air festival that I got to see one of those beauties for the first time, one of those sports air cars, you know, <laughs> cars for the, for the air. And we took a Discovery flight and no doors on the plane. It was a hot summer day. And uh, I just felt something immediately. I felt a connection, but you know, I didn't make the decision to fly then. It was later through getting involved from the marketing side into the aviation world with the, you know, with the local flight school that I started to awaken this, you know, beautiful passion to become a pilot. And I, once I made the decision, it was over. How old were you when you first got that, that urge? I was 31 years old. Okay. And you had a discovery flight. Where did you fly to? We were just basically around the area. I, um, I live in uh, North Aurora, Illinois, and we have an airport about 10 minutes away from our house. And we literally went up, went to see the cornfields, you know, nothing uh, exuberant. And I just felt a connection, like a spiritual connection. Of course, I didn't know how difficult it was going to be, especially running two companies, uh, two nonprofits, and having a speaking career, an author career around the world. I, I just never expected that it would be so hard, but that's what kind of got me excited. Was there a mentor in your life that helped push you towards aviation or helped you along? Certainly nobody that got me into aviation per se, but once I was in it, I discovered many of my instructors that said, I believe in you. I was sort of the underdog, you know, coming in and, you know, saying, you know, you're doing this as a hobby. And I found amazing people. And, you know, as I go back to my aviation training, I, I found so many mentors and so many micro moments of wisdom that were passed on to me that have helped me become a good pilot, an okay pilot, right? How important is that? I think it's extremely important. And I, uh, I run a nonprofit organization for young Latinas over the last seven years. And the one thing I tell them is, I believe in you. Sometimes all you need is somebody saying, I believe in you. And that gives you the courage to say, you know what, I should probably believe in myself too. What is the nonprofit organization for Latinas so folks could get there and, and find out more about it? Absolutely, it's called uh, the Fig Factor Foundation and it aims to help young Latinas unleash the amazing energy that they have inside of them. We help uh, young ladies ages 12 to 25. We've had 213 graduates go through our program. And it's not necessarily aviation, this is just about life in general. Life in general. Okay, taking it back to aviation, you wrote a book about Latinas in aviation. How did that idea start? A divine download or an inspiration as I call them, uh, you know, and it's just, uh, that was my 25th book in this amazing journey as an author since 2010. Published my first one at the age of 26. Don't ask me how I got another 25 done from that, but I just knew that, you know, when I landed on this thing, I'm a two-time cancer survivor, so that really what sparked the sense of urgency, right? If I have a dream, I'm not gonna wait till I'm 40, 50, 60 years old. I'm gonna do it now. I'm gonna take that first step, and even if it's not perfect. So I went on a crusade around the world through my contacts and my travels to say, if you know a Latina aviator, please send her my way. And once I knew that I was complete with uh, 22 amazing stories, I decided to launch the book in uh, August, 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, gathering over 15,000 people uh, this, for this virtual event. 
and I knew I was onto something. Wow, so 22 female Latina aviators. Aviators. And, and you relied on your friends, your mentors, people in the aviation community? Yes. Certainly there is such a small percentage of us out there. So I had to get my tentacles out to the world to see how many I can connect with. And uh, I knew that I was passionate about books since I was a little girl. They changed the way that I saw the world. Dale Carnegie, Napoleon Hill. And after surviving cancer, I said, if I have a chance at leaving something, this legacy in this world, it's gonna be through a book. My dream was to write one, but now through my other passions, including aviation, which is a pretty big one in my life, I've decided to unite those worlds, you know, the passion for books and the passion for, for aviation and bring them together. And of course, being a marketer for the last 20, 20 years, I, you know, how do you connect with people? How do you connect with people's hearts? And that's what I focused on and brought them all together with amazing collaborations. And here we are. And speaking of bringing people together, we are at College Park in, in Maryland, behind the College Park Aviation Museum. What does it mean to have some of these standout aviators that joined you today for Latinas in Aviation Day? Traveling from all over the world to join us in this micro moment at the very first ever Global Festival for Latinas in Aviation, which was another idea that came through all the inspiration that we had experienced together. It means the world. You know, oftentimes when I have a, a divine download, I take the first step, but I know the why, I know the what, but I certainly don't know the how. And I'm as surprised as many of us to see the turnout and to be here at the field of firsts. I mean, it's like triple history that we're making here with women, aviators, and being at the place where, you know, aviation was born. I mean, this is the longest standing uh, airfield and the oldest in the world. So how fitting for us to be here and to be, to represent the rarest in the industry. That is pretty special. And I saw a lot of hugs and, and a lot of emotions today. Tell me a little bit about that. I think that um, when, when people get vulnerable, you not only allow yourself to go deeper and get to know yourself, but you also give other people an opportunity to be vulnerable as well. And in that space, in that ecosystem of connection, these magical things happen. I mean, there's no other way around it. You're authentic, you're sharing, you're opening up your heart. And then in that journey, you find and discover gems along the way. And I think that's what we're experiencing. This is the first time that most of us are meeting in person. I mean, this book was launched in the middle of a pandemic and in a historic pandemic too. We, we haven't had one in a hundred years. Coincidentally, right around the same time that aviation started, right? I mean, and how incredible. I mean, we connect all the dots and we know that, uh, you know, this is meant to be for sure. Like we said, we're here at College Park. You talked a little bit about the history here at College Park and that fact that you made history today. Now you have a little more history that, that you told us about today. You had a little bit of breaking news Tell us a little bit about the second generation of the newsletter. Yes, I mean, we, along the way, uh, we have launched the second official global magazine for Latinas Aviation that came out today. And not only that, but the fact that we have an opportunity, which is probably the biggest news, to be featured as a permanent exhibit at College Park Aviation Museum. How does that so, make you feel? Like an antique, I'm joking, that's one of the, was one of the authors said. It makes me feel humble and grounded in knowing that there's so much more to do. You know, I certainly never take it for granted. Every day that 
that gives me an opportunity to live. I renew my contract of gratitude through acts of kindness. And to me, doing this and, and putting, you know, resources and money and time and my team's efforts, you know, for my, for my businesses, it's an honor. You know, it's an honor to move the needle in that uh, awareness of Latinas in aviation. And it's, um, I'll continue to serve as long as I live. Now let's talk a little bit more about Latinas in aviation, that it's such a microcosm of aviation in general. You were inspired to follow aviation and you had folks that helped you out within, within the industry. What message would you give to other people, especially Latinas, that, to get them involved in aviation? You know what, ask for help. Get involved in the community. Don't be afraid of going for a discovery flight, feeling the magic of having those wings be an extension of you, and get a mentor. It doesn't have to be an official relationship with a contract, but if somebody inspires you, they are, unbeknownst to them, your mentor, and just follow in their footsteps. There's so much knowledge, so many resources, and the aviation industry is open arms. Talk about how important it is to diversify the aviation industry. That's something that we all strive to do. We all know that uh, there's a, a declining population of pilots. And we know that for the first time in history, in the census, uh, we are, as Latinos, no longer a minority, which means that the next generation and how we pave the way and the actions that we take over the next five, 10 years will make an impact you know, as a community. And I think the more diversity that we get into this field, the more of the next generation that we get involved, the better off that we're gonna be with our world travel and communications because we wanna make sure that, you know, we get more and more pilots and aeronautical engineers that operate this incredible vehicle to get to places around the world. <laughs> Imagine the world with no planes. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and it also is leading to outer space lately too. Absolutely, yeah. We, uh, we had the honor of having Evelyn Miralles, a 27-year veteran from NASA and uh, retired as a chief engineer do the preface for this book. And intentionally, I wanted that to happen because if we get to the world of aviation, now she can take us to the moon, right? That's my goal. <laughs> so the next one is gonna be uh, Latinas in space. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> you mentioned this a minute ago and, and we talked about broadening the horizons for a lot of people and, and broadening aviation in general. How can we reach more young people? This is a, something that we strive to do a lot. You touched on it a little bit when we talked about diversity in general and, and, and being mentors for other people, but how, how can we get younger people involved in aviation? You know, I think intercepting them at an age where they're more prone to be open to new experiences. It is said that by the age of seven, you form your core values. And, and I'm so proud to say that I'm a licensed pilot, certified pilot for the program that allows, you know, young, young pilots to get out there and, and fly. And, and just giving them more of those experiences, getting to the schools, getting to the guerrilla marketing into the communities, getting more exposure for the programs that the Air Force, the FAA, and, and all the entities like EOPA, you know, all the organizations are doing. You need more wings like us to get out into the communities to intercept those conversations and say, come and fly with me, feel the plane, or go to the, to the shop, get under an aircraft, you know, just test the gas, you know, for the different models or, you know, open up the, you know, open up the, the, the fuel, you know, the, the, the oil tank and just get your hands dirty, right? And, and, and understand all the things that make an aircraft become airborne. 
You have 22 powerful women here that are Latinas that, that you said came from all over the world to, to share their stories. What are some of the powerful stories that they shared? You know what? Learning from the spectrum, right? Some of them were involved in aviation since they were little girls sitting in the cockpit with, you know, their father as a captain, while others uh, were the very first in this world of aviation and they got hit by the bug of, uh, you know, the passion for aviation. I think what I'm most impressed with is the stamina, the resiliency that it takes to go against the odds. You know, when you see people that don't look like you and say, you know what, the aircraft does not know if I'm Latina or not. The aircraft knows position, right? And when you can get past those limitations and say, I am going to land this aircraft because I have the ability, because I believe in me. That's, that's what I really admire most about these this ladies um, from all walks of life. And I'm, I'm inspired by them and it keeps the fuel going. And I'm gonna ask you a little bit about aviation. You said you learned in Aurora, right, Illinois. Illinois. What's your favorite aviation flight or, or time of day or, or, or place to go? I absolutely love sunset flights. I love when that sun just comes down into the horizon. I love that. And I love flying to Rochelle Airport. It's my favorite airport in the world. I get to land next to parachuters, seeing them drop from the sky, hopefully not on my plane, <laughs> next to the runway. Just a beautiful sight and having a, an amazing lunch or dinner while I see them, you know, land uh, in their parachutes. I love that magic. Favorite airplane? Remos G300. I mean, that's, uh, that's the one that I have most of my training in, a light sport aircraft. High wing, beautiful, no doors in the summer, free like a bird. If price was no object, what airplane would you buy? Wow. <laughs> Probably a Gulfstream. I mean, I would love to, you know, get to the 40, you know, 45,000 uh, feet up in the air, rather than the three to 6,000 feet that I get up with the remote, so that would be amazing. And you also have friends that are Latinas that could help teach you how to fly yes, that I airplane. Mean, I, I got quite today. a few in the book, right, that have now gotten their, uh, you know, their first officers or, or captains in, uh, you know, those kinds of beautiful planes <laughs> too. When you talk to the aviators in your book, you ask them some personal questions. They, they all had special quotes. What is your special quote? Taking off is optional, landing and your dreams is mandatory. So David, I, I, it's just great that she happened to be at the event. And so tell me a little bit more about it. What, what was, were people flying? Were they just sort of getting together, looking for ideas on how to, you know, grow their segment or what, what was going on? Well, I'll tell you what, Ian, first thing that was kind of cool is that a lot of these female movers and shakers, pioneers, if you will, of the Latina pioneers, they flew in in general aviation aircraft. A handful of them did in Cessna 172s, 180s and Robinson R-44 helicopter. Several others came in commercially into the D.C. area, and we're talking at College Park Airport, which is an historical airport, Ian, because it's the long, if I'm not mistaken, it's the longest continually 
running airport, continually open airport in the U.S. So this was the first time that so many of these Latinas were in one place together. So they, they met each other in person for the first time, and there were a lot of hugs and, and a lot of greetings and a lot of, you know, selfies and things like that. But the aviators themselves, uh, I mean, we're talking everything from U.S. Air Force pilots to Aeromexico managers to mechanics, CFIs, corporate pilots. I mean, these Latinas spanned the range, Ian, and they were so supportive of each other. And they also had some good mentorship going. They talked a little bit about how they got involved in aviation and how other people, including young people, can get involved in aviation. So overall, it was a very positive event. And let's hope that this leads to further diversity among the aviation community. Yeah. All right. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tillis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash talk and wherever you can get your podcasts, whether they're via Apple or Google. All right. We'll see you next time, David. See you next time. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.